Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Longfellow said in his poem, A Psalm of Life, Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act that each tomorrow find us further than today. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still like muffled drums are beating, funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, howe'er pleasant, let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints in the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another, sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What does it mean to be a boy? How do boys become men? How might books aid boys in that journey from boys to men? The Michaelmas term 2020 96 Thesis, the quarterly newsletter of Wittenberg Academy, brings to our consideration the life of boys. Within that, Miss Ellie Mummy brings forward for us 10 books boys should read before they are 21. Joining us today to discuss the first half of her list is Miss Ellie Mummy. Ellie, welcome back. Thanks. I'm very excited to be here. This is a list I am very much looking forward to talking about. They are books that I think are wonderful and that I have really enjoyed and that I really do think work well for this adventure of raising boys. Ellie, the maturation of boys to men is a journey that neither of us will go through personally, <laughs> but <laughs> we certainly have and will continue to experience as bystanders. Folks are always looking for book recommendations, uh, so I'm excited to talk through your list, and hopefully our listeners will see it as an encouragement, uh, not only in their adventure of raising boys, but also as perhaps an opportunity, especially for us women, to, to have a little bit of insight into what makes boys tick, and what helps propel them from boyhood to manhood. I've been rereading Anthony Esselin's book, uh, Defending Boyhood, and I don't know, have you read that book? I haven't yet. It's very high on my list of books to read. I hadn't gotten a hold of it. Was that last year, I believe, that that came out? It's been in the, the recent past. It's fantastic, as we would expect of Esselin. Very 
in your face and pointed <laughs> in terms of here's here's how things are folks and and so i'm i'm looking forward to seeing how uh your your list kind of matches up with some of the things that that he talks about because i think it does i think it flows well together and so i would certainly uh commend to our readers uh Esselin's book and will provide a link for that in the episode notes. So speaking of Anthony Esselin, one of the articles that has most been a part of this discussion I've had with friends and siblings is an article by Anthony Esselin. It is called An Age of Indoor Cats. And it's not entirely about men or about women or about gender roles, but it talks a lot about how the last 100 years have affected gender and have affected um all of that, and and how it kind of trickles down into men, raising men and raising women. So I would highly recommend that as well. It's a great article and one that makes me very excited for reading his book now about this, but that article has stuck with me for years now, and I would highly recommend it as well. That's great. I haven't read that article, so I'm definitely going to look that up. Do you remember in what publication it appeared? I believe it was in Chronicles magazine. Okay, perfect. I'll have to give give that a look for sure. So in this episode, we are going to discuss the first half of your list, and then our listeners will have to come back for our next episode to hear about the second half of your, your list. So the first half, it's just this plethora of adventure. I mean, even just reading the titles, you can see in your mind's eye boys just scampering about. I mean, there's so much energy <laughs> in the first half of this list. It's, it's fantastic. So what are your first five books? And then we'll, we'll dive more deeply into each one. Sure thing. So the first five are Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, Lloyd Alexander's The Chronicles of Pride Dane, and Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So I have to admit that I haven't read very many of these. And so my, my list of books that I need to read definitely grew longer. And having three young boys, I'm very excited about this because, you know, these are all books, given your recommendation, that I definitely want to put before them. So let's dive into each one. So Kipling's Just So Stories. Tell us about that work. So right away to start off the list, I had a long kind of internal debate about which Kipling novel to choose. So it was very back and forth between the Just So stories and the Jungle Book. The Jungle Book is far more familiar, I think, to modern audiences, again, at least in its adaptions. But I ended up going with Just So stories because the Just So stories just tell the story of not really creation, but kind of hinting at creation. They're kind of a playoff on wondering at the marvels of the natural world. 
So when you read the Just So stories, the stories are how the camel got his hump, how the leopard got his stripes. You know, it's it's asking those questions, but their answer is um, humorous and contemplative. It it makes you think, and it doesn't give you a bland scientific fact with no explanation. It's not just a list of facts. It's a way to teach kids to kind of be imaginative about the world around them and to think of everything around them as having a reason, uh, which is, I think, a really cool, really beautiful thing that it does, is it teaches you to search for the reasons behind the way that the world is shaped around you. What you were talking about immediately brought to mind a line from G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, uh, where he says, and I just happen to have it here, mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon, but a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. Boys like romantic tales, but babies like realistic tales because they find them romantic. So when you were talking about just this, the the joy of, of things and, you know, kind of the lighthearted nature of exploring things, it reminded me of that Chesterton quote from Orthodoxy. Yeah, and I think the Just So stories do a unique thing in that they combine both of those. So they are very practical and sensical and the mythical creatures that they're introducing aren't mythical creatures at all. They are the animals that we would see in a zoo, the animals that we would see in Kipling's adventures when he was in uh, the Middle East and in India. You would see these animals and it introduces you to wild and fantastical animals while also you get to know that they exist. So you're gonna get to see them one day, which I think is really cool and really beautiful for little kids. It, it gives them something to look forward to is that little boys know that when they're learning why the camel got his hump, they get to see the camel with his hump someday. And that is, is wild and fantastical, but it's also very literal and very real. And they get to know that. And that is just kind of a wonderful level of truth that they get to look forward to and cherish. And at the same time, I, I'm thinking specifically of how the camel got his hump because it was my favorite as a child. But the stories are very uh, delightful and they they are similar to an Aesop's fable in that they make you think about the consequences of your actions. So in the Just So stories, the camel gets his hump because there are a whole bunch of animals trying to move things around and get things done and he doesn't want to. And so he just goes around going humph all of the time. And then <laughs> on like the third time that he does that, he ends up with a hump on his back. And and Kipling just ends that story with, and we've dropped the H off the end of humph now. And now he just has a hump. And and that's how he gets his hump. It, it's, it's so it's wildly delightful and it's not at all what you would expect it to be. But he also kind of slides in there that camels can carry water in their hump. And, you know, instead of saying that that's just a wild scientific fact, in, in the story, it's a, well, 
you didn't want to help out at all and you pretended that you were dehydrated or exhausted and just made up excuses. So now you are going to have something that doesn't allow you to say, oh, I haven't had enough water. I'm too exhausted. You now can carry all your water with you the whole time and you will always be able to help and you will always be a pack animal. And it, it has that really interesting kind of sense of morality and sense of responsibility to it as well that I think is just a delightful and wonderful thing for kids to read because it is so unique and has always stood out to me. I read these when I was very little and they stood out to me, they stood out to my siblings. They are just such unique stories. And you can learn similar things from the Jungle Book, which is why I went back and forth about it. But I think that humor and that kind of episodic nature of getting to know these animals is more crucial to a little boy and his curiosity and his kind of sense of the world around him and how to interact with the world around him that I think Just So Stories is just a great starting point for little kids. Most, uh, most assuredly. And it's, it's interesting to ponder. So I have Just So Stories in front of me and was, was kind of paging through it as, as you were speaking. And uh, there's, there's just this, and, and you mentioned this, but there's just this kind of delight as, as you read, you know, for parents who are reading this to their children, I would imagine that there, that it would be difficult to read it without a sparkle in your eye, you know, just because, and especially if you've read it before, you know, what's coming. You know, and we all know that with young children, and uh, I, I think this is universal for for young children, but that they don't tire of hearing the same. They know how the story is going to end, but they want to hear it again and again and again, just because they love how it ends. And I could see, uh, I could see just so stories fitting in that category of, you know, mommy, read me again the one about how the camel got its hump or whatever the case. I don't know if if that was uh, your reality as a child or the reality for any of your siblings that, that you just love to hear these stories over and over. Well, I mean, we definitely got it on book on tape and would listen to it every evening for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. So I That's think that's fantastic. Does- Pretty much account for what you're saying. And I think actually with this list in general, one of the things I did, especially with this first half that we're discussing now, that are especially appropriate for young boys, these are books you will really enjoy reading to your children. They are not books that grow trite with age or are enchanting to young people and not that interesting to adults. They are just gold mines that keep on giving Every single time you dig deeper, you are going to discover new things. Rereading the Just So stories as an adult, rather than just hearing it playing in my head as a little kid and having all of the associations I did with it as a child, is so different and so delightful because I see more of the brilliance of it in the simplicity of what he's doing. And those are just, they stand out very well. But all of this list, all of these five books, you could easily read out loud to your children and be 
even more delighted than them. You know, you might find yourself being the one to say, well, we're going to read more of the Just So stories today. I know you want to read this picture book, but we should read more of these. I want to find out what's going on. They're very, very entertaining and incredibly accessible for adults as well as young children. And it's one of those things where even if you are past 21 and are a man, you're going to take a lot away from the Just So stories if even reading them the first time. They, they will do something for you and it will be, it will be wonderful. And I noticed that each of the stories and Kipling does this in the jungle book as well, but he inserts or integrates, I'm not sure what word I want to use, but he includes poetry in each of, or associated with each of the stories. And he does this if I'm remembering correctly, in the Jungle Book as well. And any opportunity to put poetry before our children is is always good. Yes, and Kipling is a master of poetry. I mean, I didn't read any of his poetry outside of what, what you find in those two novels until I was in college. And then I discovered just his standalone poetry and was just in awe of the fact that it had this sense of familiarity to it. I knew Kipling well because I read him over and over again as a child, but his poetry is just this delight and this exploration of all sorts of wonderful poetic techniques, poetic insights, and really, really deep concepts. And he, he masterfully includes that in these novels so that your children are hearing poetry and beginning to have an ear for that poetry, which is an absolute delight. I love it very, very much. I love when novels can include things that build a great foundation. So the more poetry that your children encounter in a novel, for example, in The Hobbit, in The Lord of the Rings, the more you're going to develop in them a natural rhythm and a natural meter for that poetry. And Kipling certainly does that. And again, I honestly would highly recommend The Jungle Book as well. I know growing up, my dad's favorite story was Ricky Ticky Tavi from The Jungle Book. Sure. So it's it's one of those things where both are absolutely delightful. I would highly encourage both. I think the Just So stories, one, simply because they work even for a younger audience than The Jungle Book does. And they're just delightful. They're very, you know, very much in the style of Aesop, but they have a lot more fun in them, which I think is wonderful. And sometimes it's nice to have a book that you can just go and read a standalone chapter and there we go, we've accomplished it. You know, rather than, you know, sometimes life gets crazy and, you know, it might be a couple of days until you return to whatever you're reading with your children. And so having an option that you can say, Hey guys, let's read and you can you can accomplish you know, just from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, you can accomplish one of these stories and have a, a wonderful delightful time with your children that you can fit in even in a busy day. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's just this ability to be very individualistic about it or 
to kind of help because there, there are some of the stress so stories that repeat characters and sometimes they're not even going to explicitly say that they repeat characters but as a child you're going to hear oh well the camel's in another story so i know the camel this is what the camel is like i know exactly how he acts and it becomes this kind of delight where it's like you're constantly re-meeting new friends um and it, it gives you a lot of fuel to be the parent when your uh, child is complaining and to say, oh, are we the camel now? Because you're, I'm hearing a lot of humph-ing. There's, there's a lot that you can do with it to incorporate it and have fun with it. Kipling, um, both with the Just So stories and with ju- The Jungle Book, is one of the authors I remember very distinctly, my siblings and I, playing imaginary games in the universe of. So we would constantly play as though we were interacting with the animals in the Just So stories or with Ricky Tiki Tavi or in the Jungle Book. We, we constantly, we just loved the universe so much. And I think one of the things we loved the most was this idea that we could go and we could see the landscape and we could see all the animals if we wanted. We could grow up and go to where Mowgli was. We could go see the camel. We could see these things. So I think it does that. It helps with that fascination age where, like Chesterton says, we don't need dragons and we don't need magical lands. We are as much in love with our own world and the curious makings of our own world that we would love to read about it. And I think that is a great age in childhood, especially in young boys. They have they go through such a phase, every boy I know, where all they wanna do is read about animals and read about snakes and check out every scientific book in the library about snakes and about every animal they can think of. And I think this is the perfect book for them because it combines story with that natural world curiosity that I think is wonderful and definitely to be encouraged. Most certainly. Absolutely. All right. This next book on your list, I would suspect that many of our listeners are very familiar with Peter Pan, but very few may have actually read the book or even known that there was a book. Yeah, I think the biggest shock or one of the biggest shocks of my life coming to college was meeting a whole bunch of people who loved Peter Pan as much as I did and as much as my siblings and I did, only to discover none of them had read the book. I grew up with the book. I I absolutely watched the Disney film and a few other films that were related to Peter Pan, but I, I grew up on the book first and the book is the most important part to me. And it fascinated me that pretty much no one has actually read the book Peter Pan because the book does things that no adaption has ever done since. And so you miss out on some really, really fundamental parts of Peter Pan as a novel, most primarily the character of Peter himself, if you are not reading from the book. So are you just going to leave us hanging? Are you going to give us some <laughs> some insight? Because now, now I just want to to stop our recording and and go read the book and and say, okay, I'm I'm very intrigued because I I sit in that category of you know I I've I've seen various movie versions of of Peter Pan, but I've not read the book, so it is it is on my list of of books to 
to read now because of of your list. Yeah, so the thing that every adaption has fallen short of representing in the way that the book does is that Peter is absolutely the hero of this story, but he is also simultaneously the villain or the anti-hero of the story. It is very important that he is not only good and that he is not only bad. He is simultaneously both in a very, very real way. And you don't see that in any of the adaptions. In the Disney movie, you are just constantly in love and enthusiastic. And Peter is so wonderful. He has such good spirit of adventure and leadership and all of that. But you see none of his shortcomings. His shortcomings are all over the place in the book. You see that he is selfish. You see that he is scared and afraid of growing up and that he is prideful. He thinks very highly of himself. And the novel does a marvelous job of portraying how important it is to be brave, to be a good leader, to be adventurous, um, and to take care of and be mindful of all of the people under your care as he takes care of the Lost Boys, as he takes care of Wendy and her brothers, and to stand up against all these forces of evil and go on all of these adventures. But it simultaneously shows you that it isn't a good thing to go on adventures and be brave if you're doing it for the sake of glory and you're doing it so that other people think you're brave and wonderful. That is not the purpose of being brave and protective and all of that. And it ends up being Peter's shortcoming and the thing that really kind of unravels everything he has been everything he has structured his life to be since running away from his carriage. And, and that's, that's a story that you don't even hear in almost every adaption is that Peter's origin is that he runs away from his parents. He climbs out of their perambulator when he hears his parents talking about how he's going to grow up. He's scared of that. And he runs away and he goes to Neverland and he decides to never grow up. And so he runs away out of fear and out of selfishness rather than, out of any sort of great grandeur or sense of duty or helpfulness. And that really reflects on everything that he does in the book and comes across very specifically to the readers. You both love Peter and pity Peter. And I think that's very important to this story. So in Barry's Peter Pan, there is a fascination, a love of childhood and all that there is the takeaway lesson and correct me if I'm wrong the takeaway lesson isn't well childhood is to be esteemed over adulthood correct so what you learn at the end of the novel Peter Pan is that the truly brave thing to do and the truly chivalrous and adventurous thing to do is to grow up and to accept and embrace all of the aspects of that. And you get that beautifully with Wendy. So Wendy is kind of his <sighs> antithesis by the end because she wants to grow up. She wants to be a mom. She wants to be a wife. She wants to be an adult. She's excited about it. She's very nervous and very scared of it. And so throughout the novel, you see her struggling with that. Peter comes to her when she's told she has to move out of her nursery and start 
start kind of that adolescence stage where she's no longer gets to be a little girl who plays and makes things up. She now has to kind of transition into youth and to transition into all these things she's very unsure of. And so Peter comes to her and she gladly goes off with him to not have to deal with those things. And then throughout the novel, as we see Peter romanticizing this forever youthfulness, we see Wendy deciding that being an adult is a great gift and a great blessing. And we see her not only decide that for herself, but desperately wish that she could help Peter see that himself. And I think that as we look around our world, this is certainly something needing to be impressed upon our young children, and especially on our young boys, because we live in a world, perhaps uniquely in this age, in this time period, that allows for, and sometimes even celebrates, the perpetual childhood of men. Absolutely. And I think, honestly, it comes from that misunderstanding of what adventure is and the misunderstanding of what true chivalry and true things to be proud of are. What are what are virtues? And that is something you really get introduced to in Peter Pan because you're constantly realizing that when you are a little kid, the things that you think of when you're a little kid or a young man um, up till, you know, 21, 30, you can, pick, you can pick the age. It's definitely pushed back even farther in our age than I think it has been any other time is this sense of adventure. It's very important that we instill in boys a sense of adventure and that they read stories about knights and they read stories about Peter Pan flying and fighting pirates all the time. Those are very important stories. But I think we definitely in the modern kind of train of thought have done a huge disservice to men in that we revere that. And we have all these men who are now in their 40s and their 50s and their 70s and their 80s who have constantly been telling these young men, oh, you're living the glory days. I, I miss when I was back there. We, we, in essence, have a whole society of Peter Pans who really <laughs> wish they had never grown old. Yeah. Rather than actually seeing that the true life and the life worth living is a life of adulthood, serving others and putting others before yourself which is ultimately what Peter is incapable of doing throughout the whole novel. And is something that Barry pretty much specifically says is that Peter is incredibly selfish. He thinks of himself first and everyone else second. And that doesn't make any character hate him. It's not like Wendy hates him, but she pities him because she, she knows he's not going to ever really live life because he's refusing to see what the purpose of life is. So carrying on then through your list, we come to the third book that I have not read, or this, this is a whole series of books that I have not read. So introduce us to Lloyd Alexander's The Chronicles of Prydain. The Chronicles of Prydain is probably one of the most overlooked 
series in the entire world. It is an incredible, incredibly masterful work of literature. It is in five books. It reads just as easily as the Chronicles of Narnia, although it might have a few more difficult or intimidating parts. Parts of it might be more scary, I would say, but it in in level of difficulty to read, it is about the exact same. And it follows the story of an assistant pig keeper named Tarin as he ends up well, first and foremost, he he is the assistant pig keeper of a magical pig. And so he has to take care of his pig and help her and protect her and ends up on all of these adventures throughout all five novels to save Prydain, the land that he lives in, along with friends that he meets along the way, including the princess Ailanwi, the knight Gwydion, and a few others, a bard named Fluter Flam, and then his very adventurous friend Gurgi, who I think needs no introduction and that you just have to meet him in the novel to know much about Gurgi. <laughs> but he he builds this collection of friends and helpers throughout the novel that he works with and that he practices and he has to deal with all these things he's not familiar with. He has lived on a farm his whole life. He is an assistant pig keeper. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know where he's come from. He doesn't know his family heritage. He he really is growing up in every sense of the word during this series. And easily the most important book for young men in this series is Tarin Wanderer. So the fourth book in this series is about Tarin who is now a teen, um, and probably I think 16 or 17 in Tarn Wanderer, he has now gone on all these adventures and there's a lovely princess he's gone on a lot of adventures with. And he's seen these great examples of men of royal lineage, of um, a family inheritance sort of background, people who inherit their parents' trade and bring it down. And he doesn't know who his parents are. And in Tarin Wanderer, he makes the realization and the decision that if he is ever going to be what he wants to be, and that if he's ever going to be an adult, he needs to go out on his own and explore who he is in the world around him. And so he sets off on his own for the whole novel, just going from house to house, getting to know person to person, learning from them all their different skills, whether it's weaving or like welding swords. He just learns and learns more about himself by going and getting to know others and searching for really what it means to be an adult and what it means to be a man worthy of a woman's love. So he goes off in the hopes that he can come back someone worthy of the woman he loves. And, and he knows that to ask her before he goes off would be selfish, but if he goes off and makes a name for himself, but also comes into his own, he will be worthy and ready to ask her um, to have him if she's willing. And it is really brilliantly done. Every man that I know who read these books when they were young is immediately like, yes, Taran Wanderer is absolutely crucial to who I am and to how I pictured growing up and assuming responsibilities. That book is huge for that. But the whole series, you really need 
the buildup to that book, and then the aftermath of that book in the fifth, in the climax. So that book is the most important, but you can't read it without reading the series or it won't really do the same thing. So it sounds, again, that Lloyd Alexander is is highlighting and encouraging this whole idea of 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 growing up of becoming a man that this is a desirable thing rather than something to loathe or fear or try to avoid absolutely i think it does a great job also of teaching you that your role models are really, really crucial. The people that you look up to, the men you want to grow into, really shape who you are. And so Tarin, especially, he comes across uh, Gwydion, who is kind of this knight prince. Uh, I, if I'm going to compare him to other literary characters, he is very much kind of the Aragorn type of character. And he he looks up to Gwydion instantly. He wants to be what Gwydion is, this um, selfless and brave and incredibly talented fighter. And I mean, Tarin messes up all the time. He is young. He doesn't know what he's doing. He wants to do it originally because he's cool and it's it, it gets a lot of praise and laud and he wants to get that himself. But the more he grows the, by watching these men that are exemplary in his life, he realizes that their motivation is compassion for others and protecting others and that their might and valor comes from what they're protecting, not from their own bravery. It's, it's because of what they, what they care about and what they are pursuing that they are the way that they are. And so he has these wonderful role models that illustrate to him that the great parts of life are not serving yourself and being young, but are being an adult who protects and defends his country and his people and his family. And I think that is also a wonderful part of this, this series, is that it really showcases how important your influences and the people you spend your time with are. Well, that seems like a great segue into Mark Twain and Huck Finn. So well played there. These are the two that I have read. So these these are the most familiar to me. But I'd love to hear why you decided that these should be on the list. I love Mark Twain. I think he's absolutely brilliant. I know there are a lot of people who have trouble stomaching him or his sense of humor and his kind of just blatant statement of fact. Like the way he does things is not subtle and the way he approaches things is not whimsical. This is really the turning point of this list in that you're not going from this incredibly romantic, incredibly, you know, chivalrous moment in all of these novels right. and you go to Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer who are about the least classical kind of knightly characters you're ever going to meet. And that's honestly brilliant because Mark Twain understood what it means to be a little boy and to be an adolescent boy. When you read those books, you are like, I know every single one of the guys that I know. I can see them in, in these characters somehow. You get Tom, who is just 
causing mischief and playing pretend with all of these characters that he's read about in his books and in his school work. And he's twisting the stories and making them how he wants them to be and going on adventures. And in those adventures, you see a lot of that Peter Pan-like quality to romanticize things and want to be admired. But you also see him beginning to be tempted by and won over by adulthood and some of the fancies of adulthood as you go along. And then Huck Finn is just a brilliant novel for young children to read and for adults to keep reading over and over and over again. I just reread it this summer and every single time that I've read it, it has stood out to me just how sensical the book is. I think we like to approach Huck Finn as though he doesn't know what he's talking about and he's incredibly uneducated. That is something we come back to in the novel is that he is fleeing from education and from his dad, but he doesn't want to be learned. He doesn't want to be cultured, civilized. And as you listen to him, you realize very quickly that he's incredibly rational. He, he, he takes what he knows and he leads it to a logical conclusion. He's missing the point, and so he's often very wrong, but it's not because his logic is faulty. It's because he, he doesn't know all of the premises yet. And that, I think, is brilliant, because young boys have all sorts of conclusions. They reach a lot of conclusions in life. Yes, and, they do. <laughs> and Huck Finn does a masterful job of illustrating that and you know upholding that for young boys who read it, but also reminding adults that we can't just write that off, that that young boys do that very well. And it is really a duty of ours to showcase that and help them have all of the premises and be able to actually understand enough about the world that their rationalizations are based entirely on reality, not just on things that they've been told and didn't understand. It does a great job also of discussing, there are so many times in Huck Finn, where Huck gets frustrated with something or thinks that something is ridiculous and he explains it and it's a very famous passage from a novel that we've all read or a passage in the Bible, in scripture, and he writes it off as ridiculous and you realize it's because it was explained poorly to him or because he asked a question about it and was written off as like, oh, that's a ridiculous question. You're just trying to get attention. When in reality, he's like, I don't, why... You know, why is there a, a donkey that talks? That seems absurd to me in that. I mean, that wouldn't happen. And, and no one has that dialogue. So I think it teaches patience to adult readers. Like as you continue to return to it, you realize more and more that you just you have to answer them and you have to be willing to have those conversations, even though they come up probably far more often than most of us adults like to have patience for. Um and I think my other reason why I think Huck Finn is incredibly important is that Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn as a duo, especially in Huckleberry Finn, is a book about a little boy becoming a man in, in the way that Huck Finn in that novel makes his first decisions about what he thinks is right, not what he assumes or is told by his parents or by the widow and the people who take care of him, not by what his society tells him is right. He really grapples with what is actually good and what is actually right and has to struggle with whether or not he's brave enough to act for the thing that he thinks is right, even if his society or his family doesn't think it is. 
Um, and that, of course, is with slavery in that novel. And it, he does a masterful job, Twain does a masterful job, of not showcasing that as any kind of brilliant cleverness in Huckleberry Finn or any sort of enlightenment. It just showcases him wrestling with the fact that the person he is traveling with is fully a human being and that knowing that he can't allow the things that have been happening to his friend to happen, but he also doesn't know what to do with that. So I think that is really, really brilliant. Is it's, is it's that very transitional moment in a child's life when they realize that adults don't have everything figured out and that there is some a way that other people tell you you should do things. There's a way that you want to do things, but then above all of that, there is a right thing to do. There is an ultimate thing that you should do regardless of whether or not you want to or whether or not other people want you to. In your article, in the 96th thesis, you, you say of these books that the characters are constantly asking themselves three questions. What do I want? What do other people want of me? And what is the right thing to do? And... I think that masterfully captures, you know, the challenge of childhood, of boyhood into manhood. Because part of going from boyhood, you know, when you are a boy, to a certain extent, you are practicing to be a man. You are, you are working at being a man and wrestling with those very questions. But even when you are a man, you don't discard those questions. Absolutely. I, uh, somewhat controversially in my friend groups, call Huck Finn a coming-of-age story, which a lot of people disagree with, simply because he doesn't, I mean, it all happens in one year. And it's not like he actually grows to be that much older. But that really is honestly what he does, is he comes of age. He has a realization of that structure of life, is that those three questions are the three questions you are going to ask over and over and over again for all of adult life. And your awareness that the third question exists, what is the right thing to do, is in many ways maturity. And your understanding that you, you're supposed to do the answer to that, even if you would rather do the answer to either of the other ones. So that I think is incredibly crucial to this novel, is that Huck becomes an adult in this novel. He's not a good adult. He's not very good at it. He's not super responsible. And he certainly does not decide constantly to do the right thing. But he becomes incredibly aware throughout this novel that there is a right thing to do. And he wrestles with the fact that there is a, a right thing to do and that he can't just be entirely subjective to his own whims. And that really is adulthood, is realizing that. And he then comes face to face with someone that he knows very well from his past. And he has gone through that transition and his friend has not, This like this other character. He still does not ask what is the right thing to do. He asks, what do I want to do? What do people want of me? But he has not learned to ask the question, what is the right thing to do? And so 
Huck has a divide then. Like at the end of the novel, we see this divide where he's frustrated by the fact that there is no acknowledgement of that third question because now the third question is all he talks about. And I think that that is actually a really, really great parallel to scripture and the whole concept of sin versus transgression and the idea of knowing your sin versus being unaware of your sin. Once you know that something is sinful, it becomes a transgression. It becomes very different to sin when you know you're sinning and you know it's the wrong thing to do than if you have no idea that what you're doing is a sin. And I think Huck Finn is a great way to learn that and a great illustration of that is that Huck goes from doing a whole bunch of things that are probably ridiculous and they're certainly not the right thing to do, but not knowing that there's anything wrong with them to being at the end of the novel riddled with guilt if he does something that he knows is wrong because he now knows that there is a right thing to do. And I think that's the beautiful part of maturity that I think needs to come. And that's kind of the last, this is really the last adolescent specific novel that I have on this list because that realization completely changes everything. This full consciousness of right versus wrong is a form of maturity and the constant wrestling with what is the right thing to do is really what it means to be an adult. And like you said, that is not going anywhere. That is what adulthood is. It is what men will do. And so Huck has transitioned from being a young boy who does things for his own good and for his own laud and enjoyment to a young man who is now constantly wrestling with what the right thing to do is for him or other people. And as we've talked about before, adulthood isn't necessarily an age. You know, you don't hit a certain age and you go, oh, now I'm an adult. It, it's a process of wrestling through all of these things and, and working through them and resolving them and living in that tension of wanting to do what you want to do always and forever <laughs> versus putting aside yourself and working and living and striving for the sake of one's neighbor. Absolutely. I think it, it really isn't about age. It's about the realization of that. And in many ways, the realization that being an adult doesn't mean doing the right thing every single time, no matter what we we love our heroes and we love these men that we look up to and young boys should want to be a Gwydion. They should want to be and emulate these great men and these great characters. But ultimately in adulthood, we realize that those men have fallings and they have character flaws and that what makes them great men and what makes them commendable is that they, they don't sit on their fallings or wallow in their mistakes, they pick themselves up and say, I did the wrong thing. Now moving forward again, how do I do the right thing? And you, you have to constantly pick yourself up and continue to ask that third question when it is much easier to not have to deal with it. And so the constant willingness and insistence to reckon with that third question is, I think, what maturity actually is and what adulthood is. And that isn't reached at a certain age. Every young man is going to reach that at a different point. 
And I think we want to do the best that we can to shape our young men to reach that as soon as they can, and then to equip them for all the failings they're immediately going to notice in themselves when they realize that there is that right thing to do in every single scenario. And we support them when they succeed in doing the right thing, and we support them when they fail. Looking at the second half of your list, it seems as though the binding factor in all of them is that wrestling with that last question. What is the right thing to do? Absolutely. And I think that that's really what I wanted this list to do was to lead us to that turning point in Huck Finn. And then for us to see all of these examples of men who struggle with that, men who exceed at that, and to showcase a lot of the common ways and temptations that men are going to deal with and be tempted to fall short. And so these, these coming books that we'll talk about are really in so many ways struggling with that. And we are just introduced to a whole lot of men who deal with those questions and a lot of women as well, adult women who are either helpful and supportive or detrimental to that struggle. And I think that is also a really important dynamic that comes out a lot in these next few books. Well, I would encourage all of our listeners to be sure to tune in for our next episode so that they can hear us discuss the second half of Ellie's list. Ellie, thank you for joining us today. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you for having me. I am very enthusiastic again about this topic and about these these novels and their effect on young men and i'm very excited to continue our discussion next time thank you for joining us today for the wittenberg hour be sure to subscribe to the wittenberg hour so as to not miss an episode if you would like to learn more about wittenberg academy please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org you can like and follow wittenberg academy on facebook twitter and instagram join us again next time on the wittenberg hour